You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. Building projects require a blueprint, a picture of the finished product, something to consistently reference during construction, a goal to work towards, a guide to follow. But what is the blueprint for the church? What picture is the reference for God's people? What is the guide for the Christian life? Jesus promises to build his church, but how? The blueprint for the church isn't a list of policies and procedures. It's not a plan for elaborate sanctuaries and classrooms, and it's not tips and tricks for increasing church attendance and budget. The blueprint for the church is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, who is equal to God. Jesus, who became a servant. Jesus, who died a sinner's death, though he was innocent. Jesus, who God resurrected and highly exalted. Jesus, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, he is Lord. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a picture of humility and glory, a cross and a crown, sacrifice and exaltation, and it is the finished work Paul points to in the letter to the Philippians. It's the picture he looks to as he lives his life. It's the reference the Philippians followed to shape their church. The gospel is the blueprint we have to live our lives and build Christ's church. Morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. Okay. Well, it's 87 degrees, which is nice. Um, I don't know. I was like trying to think of something to say. So uh, <laughs> my name is Jake. Uh, I serve as one of the elders here at GCC. So my wife, Sarah, and I, we've been coming here for over six years now. So I think GCC was about a year old um, when we started coming. And I've been serving as an elder for the last two years. So get to serve as part of an amazing team that gets to uh, call this church their home, uh, get to love and serve it. So if you have not met me, if you've been coming, I don't know, semi-recently, it's probably because we have been in Lake Tahoe for the last six weeks. So uh, that's probably why this might be the first time um, you're seeing me. What we do is we work with Crew, which is a college ministry. Um, it's, it's an international ministry and organization, but we work specifically at the University of Oregon. Um, but we got to go to Lake Tahoe where they bring in students from all over the country who stay there for 10 weeks. It's actually pretty cool. Uh, they all get jobs in town and we kind of train and help coach them on how to share their faith with their coworkers uh, as something that they kind of bring back with them onto their campuses uh, to help their classmates know Jesus, uh, places that they work, uh, to kind of set them up for a lifetime. So it was, it was a really cool experience and it's Lake Tahoe. I keep telling people like, yeah, I had to suffer in you know, beautiful Lake Tahoe for six weeks and uh, get to go on the beach and stuff like that, um, which was pretty cool. Um, all that to say, I'm really excited to be back. I think like four weeks hit and Sarah and I are like, Let's get home. Like, I'm ready to be home. Uh, so it's good to be back uh, with you guys and, and really missed being here. I think one of my favorite things about our church is uh, our mission statement, make Jesus the hero. And it happens throughout everything we do. Like, even the kids back in kids ministry are hearing about the good news of Jesus and what he has done all the way from uh, our songs to our announcements. And I feel like I'm just kind of the sidekick this morning and I just kind of get to come in and, and build on what's already been shared, um, which is kind of cool. Takes the pressure off me. So thanks um, everybody for, uh, for doing that for me. So 
I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us and then we'll, we'll get started. So, uh, Father, um, I just want to say thank you. Thank you that we have a place to meet. Thank you that we, yeah, have a building, um, a community to call home. Um, Lord, I pray that our church is, in fact, a refuge, a place, a, a temple, so to speak, for people to come. And, and every Sunday we kind of have our home <laughs> uh, to take a deep breath, to see people we know and love. So I pray that people would leave today rejuvenated, refreshed. But most importantly, I pray that people would leave today with a better understanding of how much you love them and what you've done for them. Father, would you uh, speak through me? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Uh, only anything good comes from you. So if there's anything I say that's you know uh, incorrect or not true, would it go in one ear and out the other? But if there's something you want someone to walk away with, would it be like a rock in their shoe uh, that they can't forget about uh, throughout the week? Um, and so, Lord, we love you and praise you um, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you saw in the video, uh, this summer we have been going through a sermon series on the book of Philippians. Uh, so Paul is uh, actually writing this letter from prison, which makes this letter kind of unique in the sense of some of the things that he is sharing. Um, and like the intro video, Paul is giving us blueprints for the church, yes, but I think he's also giving us blueprints uh, to the very nature of what it means to live in a relationship to God. And so today we're going to continue on uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. So I'm going to go ahead and dive in. And so if you have a Bible or an app, if you could follow along with me, Philippians 3, 1 through 11. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpass, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul, Paul begins this section um, by telling the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. Um, and he goes as far to say he doesn't mind telling them over and over again. So Paul actually is going to dive even deeper into this in chapter 4, but he feels the need to kind of pause. Um, but what we need to realize for our conversation this morning is that at the very end of the verse, he mentions that it's a safeguard for you, to keep you safe, to remind you to rejoice in the Lord. Meaning Paul knows that the Philippian church needs to be reminded over and over again to rejoice in the Lord, not rejoicing in something else. So there, there must be something trying to keep these people keep the Philippians from rejoicing in the Lord, finding their value, joy in Jesus. 
And so like a good shepherd, Paul is protecting them from danger, a danger that is seeking to draw them away from the blueprint of knowing Jesus personally. And so what is this danger? I think that's what we need to ask. He says that we're to watch out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. So at first glance, you're like, what is he talking about? Who are these people? So he's talking about a group of people at the time called Judaizers. I might be saying that right. Uh, But uh, Judaizers, they're folks who would convince others that you needed to be circumcised and follow the Old Testament ceremonial laws, not just the laws, but the ceremonial ones to a T in order to be saved. That's the only way you could have a true relationship with God is if you followed this, this, and this, and if you were actually physically circumcised. He had to mention that. Uh, And so they actually, this group of people, have mistaken where true value is, and they have mistakenly looked to their own ability to follow the law to bring them close to God. They're putting their confidence in the flesh, that is what they're able to do, or what the, the works that they have done, rather than trusting in what God has done for them. And quite literally, they're trusting in the fact that they're circumcised, like a physical act, like that act alone, they believe can save you. They're taking something meant to reflect dedication and commitment to God and making it into the thing that saves you. And that's why Paul says they're mutilators of the flesh. They're taking that good thing and they're mutilating it. They're breaking it. They're, they're making it kind of gross, so to speak. They've taken a good thing, but at the end of the day, an external thing and making it try to transform them internally. And what's worse is they're trying to convince people to do the same thing. They're trying to convince people you have to do this in order to know God. So you can imagine why Paul is like, I got to protect my people. I got to protect my church from these people who are trying to lead them off course outside of the blueprint that I've created for them. And the truth is, is I think we can all fall into the same danger. I think we have the same tendency to fall into the trap of putting our value in what we do and to base our relationship with God on what we do and external works. And I think we're tempted to look to those works, whether that's, as Ian mentioned, like going to church, how much we read our Bible, how much we give, how many times we serve, even the friends that we have, or our status as good Christians, how to be a good parent and friend. Some of us put a lot of our value and our worth of like, am I a good parent? Am I a good friend? And the list goes on and on. And so some of you are like, well, how do I, how do I know if I'm placing my confidence in what I'm doing rather than in what God has done for me? So I picked kind of three areas that uh, rose to the surface as maybe the most common I could think of, but they're not the only ones. Um, And the first thing, like kind of piece of evidence, if you are placing your trust in what you do rather than um, in what God has done for you, is I think you will lack joy. You will lack joy. So God's standard of perfection for our living is impossible to achieve on our own. If he is a holy and perfect God and he's like, hey, you need to live like me, there's no way we're ever going to live up to that, which is why he has required blood sacrifice. He's required it for our sin. Uh, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Like there is a blood uh, requirement for not living up perfectly to his law. And so uh, Paul even says in Romans that there's not one who does good, not even one. So he's saying no one actually lives up to this. Uh, So doing ministry a lot, one thing I get from a lot of students um, and people in general is they're like, I'm not actually that bad. Like, 
I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't like done these bad things. So I really don't think like I'm that bad of a person. And I think one thing is to say like, well, do you think lying is wrong? Well, yeah. How many times have you lied? Well, let's just say they said one time. Okay. I have a little, I actually didn't plan this, but I have a little cup of water up here. And let's say their lie is poison, it's death, right? And I do one tiny little drop of poison for the one tiny little lie they did in their life. Would it be smart for me or good for me to drink this water? No. So even if someone is a, a great person, they, they think they've only done one terrible thing in their life, it, it pollutes our entire soul, our entire heart. And that's what Paul's getting at is he's saying that not one of us is good. We, we all fail to live up to that perfection that God has given to us, which is obviously the need for a savior. We need somebody to save us, to filter our water out, um, to rescue us. But, but the hard thing is, is that many of us try to become that one person who's the exception to that verse. You know, We're like, okay, that, that, that is kind of for most people, but I'm going to try my best to not become that. And I think the result of that can be constantly feeling like we're exhausted. It can lead to depression, hopelessness, frustration, and many of these words lack true joy. I see this a lot in myself. Um, I'm constantly trying to be the perfect father, husband, employee, honestly, even church elder, uh, but constantly running into the wall of my own failure. And to do any of them the way I know God would want me to. I mean, I can't tell you how many times this week I have raised my voice at my kids. Uh, and that's putting it softly. I want you to think well of me. But, you know, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I have talked to my children. I'm like, man, that's not, that is not how I want to treat them. Even recently realizing uh, my wife does so much uh, for our family, uh, whether that's like meal planning, taking care of our kids, like uh, planning out, like hang out with friends. Like I love people, but I'm a terrible planner. And she like puts hang out with friends in our schedule, which is a, a huge blessing. And I, I really can't think of the last time I just said, thank you for doing that. And so realizing like I even fail to live up as the husband that I want to be. I can tend to be unreliable at work. Like I say one thing one minute and then, I don't know, relation. I'm very like present person, so I get caught up in stuff. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. And then two weeks go by and I'm like, I did not do that at all, you know? And so I'm not even the employee I want to be. Uh, I've, I was just gone from you guys for like six weeks. So clearly like not being present, not being here uh, is, is hard for me to f not feel like I, you know, I'm a failure of an of a elder and someone to come here and, and serve you guys. And my joy can tend to be empty, and my frustration with myself is, is full. And I think that's because I'm looking to my own efforts and what I'm able to do to save me, give me value, rather than trusting in Christ. And his, he's the perfect father. He's the perfect groom. He's the perfect parent. Like all of these things that I'm trying to be, he is them perfectly. And so when we put all our confidence in what we do, it will steal our joy from us. So maybe that's you. Maybe you resonate with that, like that you feel like you're missing joy. A second uh, piece of evidence you might see is that uh, your relationship with God becomes pretty superficial. Um, so most of us have had to apply for a job at one point or another. Uh, maybe even some of us are applying for jobs right now. And what is the first thing that we do? We type up a resume, right? We show our potential employer all the things that we have done and can do well. So most people don't put on their resume ways that they've fallen short or ways that they have failed, right? Uh, no one would hire you if, if your uh, resume was full of things that you have done wrong or mistakes you made. So the, the, the thing is, is we often come to God like we do an employer. 
we take him our resume and we say, God, look, look what we have done. Look what I have done. You'll accept me, right? You'll think well of me. But the confidence is in that resume and what you're bringing to him. You're like, oh, please, like hope. Like that's where my hope is rather than the fact that you're going to God himself. You're going to him as an employer, hoping that he will accept you. It's in your, your works or our works and what we have done. And the irony in all of that that we miss is like God's not even looking at your resume. He's not even looking at it. And as we've heard all throughout the morning, he's looking at Jesus's perfect resume on your behalf. He's saying, I'm not even looking at that. <laughs> and the hard thing is, is like, uh, it, it's, as it comes out, it sounds like, well, obviously I shouldn't do that. But on a daily basis, I think we can tend to give him our resume and say, hey, look, rather than trusting in, in Jesus's perfect resume on our behalf. And it's like, it's not even why he loves us. So it's, it's kind of, uh, I shouldn't say silly, but you know what I mean? It, it doesn't fit um, what we are hoping for. And so um, as a result of this, it, it kind of can become a, super vi- a superficial transactional relationship with God. We can also tend to say, hey, God, look at all these things I've done. I feel like you should be giving me X, Y, Z because of all the stuff I've done. I mean, I fall into this so much because I have uh, do full-time ministry as my career. I'm like, God, I, I shouldn't use Tahoe as an example but because it's like a pretty nice place. But it's like I gave up six weeks of my summer for you or I've gone on these countries. I like talk to students all day who don't even know kind of what's going on in their life. I feel like I, I deserve and I feel like you should be giving me this or an easy life or this answer to something that I want. And I think I'm not alone in that. I think we can be like, hey, I've given all this stuff up for you. I've done this for you. Why won't you give me X, Y, Z? And what kind of relationship, just to kind of further this, what I have with my daughter. So my daughter, Thea, is three years old. It's kind of fun. I, I get to have conversations with her now. If, if she, at the end of every day or the start of every day, she's like, Dad, look, I did this and this and this for you. Can I have, uh, like, a special treat is what she calls uh, treats. Um, they're special, all of them. Uh, and, and if she's just like, give me my special treat for this, and she took her special treat and she was gone, there was, there'd be no relationship with my daughter there, no intimacy, no knowledge of her or her knowing me. It would all be transactional, and I think we can kind of tend to fall into that as Christians, as we relate to God, when we don't put our confidence in what he's done, rather putting confidence in what we're doing. So that's the second piece of evidence. The third is that we are overly or become overly critical of ourselves and others. We become overly critical of ourselves and others. So going back to the resume example, uh, when we're placing our value and worth in our efforts and what we have done, it can be pretty easy to look at someone else's resume right? And, and see how ours stacks up to theirs. That's even what happens sometimes when we're applying for jobs. We're like, what can I put on mine that's going to beat out the person next to me? Again, I'm not saying we shouldn't necessarily do that. Some of our jobs, we, we do have to make ourselves look good, right? But it makes it easy to look down on our nose spiritually at others who haven't done as much as us. Or on the flip side, we can tend to look at our feet in shame, when we see somebody else's resume, we're like, dude, look, what, look at what all they're doing. I'm not even close to this person. And we can carry around shame of not feeling like we're doing enough or not as much as that person. So whatever ditch you might find yourself or end of the spectrum you find yourself on, if you're consumed with looking around at others, comparing yourself to them, then your confidence is not in what Christ has done perfectly for you. It's in your ability uh, and your works that you're bringing to him. 
So if you're anything like me, you notice that at least in one of these areas, you probably notice some tendencies in yourself, even if it's not perfectly describing you. So I think we can all look to um, our own works rather than resting and rejoicing in what Christ has done. So what is the answer then? Um, and thankfully, Paul gives this to us in the very, very next verse. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Uh, a super cool uh, observation about this passage is that all three members of the Trinity are present. You see Spirit, you see God, and you see Christ. He's saying that we as believers, we worship the fullness of who God is, the fullness of who he is. And we do this by the Spirit of God and in the glory of Christ. In other words, we don't worship him by what we bring externally to the table, because all we really bring is our sin and our brokenness. At the end of the day, that is what we bring to him. Additionally, at the moment of our salvation, God places his spirit within us, and it's this Holy Spirit who actually brings us to worship and love God by Jesus's work, his glory, not ours. I know it's like kind of a lot here, and I'd love to talk more about it if you're like, this doesn't make any sense to me. So as putting it as simply as I can, Paul says that, we are the circumcision because we're transformed internally by the work of Christ. We no longer function by the Old Testament ceremonial laws that you have to live up to this. You have to do this, this, and this in order to access God. We've now been transformed internally by the work of Christ. And to become right with God, it's trusting in Christ, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit, and that actually is what gets us close to God and brings us into relationship. Instead, we now go through him through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, not our own works coming out of us. Therefore, we don't place any confidence, just as Paul says, in what we have done, but all our confidence is in what he has done. We don't look to our resumes to save us anymore. I also love, uh, sometimes like reading Paul, it cracks me up because I love how he goes on to say, he's like, oh yeah, if your resume is good, let me show you how my resume is so much better. Um, and mine will always be better. He's like, I have done, I have all the external things going for me. Circumcised on the correct day, I actually know my family history and the tribe I came from. I can prove to you, in other words, that I come from the chosen people of Israel because some people may not have known uh, their lineage and what tribe they came from. Uh, but he can prove it. He's ethnically Hebrew. He followed the law perfectly as a Pharisee, had all the passion in the world to protect the law to the point of persecuting believers for it. And it, hit, and it was all made him completely righteous in the eyes of the law, right? And then he says this, phrase, or this word, and he says, but. And this word is worth circling. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And I think that this is the climax of the passage. He's building up, right? He's building up all these works. He's showing you how much confidence he could have in the flesh. But he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. He could look to his own value, worth, confidence, and standing with God. But when he came face to face with Jesus, it all faded away. It all faded away. His confidence worth is now so wrapped up in his proximity to Jesus that all the other good stuff about him, some of those things are really good things. They lose their importance. Things that are normally worth, uh, reason for praise or attention or worth or right standing before God don't hold any weight for him anymore. He's saying these things don't actually, they never got me any closer to God. They were nothing in comparison to just knowing, 
really knowing Jesus. Um, so one quick kind of quick story is uh, back in 2018, uh, Sarah and I took a trip to Iceland, um, which was really fun. We uh, I graduated with a crap load of student debt um, to become a teacher. So you know it was it was a great uh, investment. Uh, <laughs> And so we paid off our debt a lot sooner even than, than we expected. And so we wanted to celebrate uh, by going to Iceland. We just saved up like a month of what we would normally pay to college loans and were able to book a whole trip to Iceland. So you can tell how much we were paying towards that. Um, but our favorite thing about uh, the country was the waterfalls. They have incredible views of waterfalls. Um, and so our goal was to see as many as we possibly could. We downloaded a little, little app that would show you every waterfall and hot springs. Uh, they have hot springs there too. And so we rented a little tiny two-door Kia uh, and cruised around the entire island trying to see as many waterfalls as possible. Um, and my personal favorite was a waterfall called Hyphos. I'll show you a picture here in a second. Um, we got our directions, we started the drive, uh, which it was pavement, eventually turned into a gravel road, eventually turned into a muddy road with lots of big, sharp rocks. And so you can imagine trying to drive a tiny two-door Kia up this bouldery road. And our hearts are starting to pump, right? And the worst part is we kept nearing these little hills and we're like, it's gonna be, it's gonna be right over that hill. And then it just takes us right down into a valley that we have to come right back up. And so, so many times throughout that, that drive, we're like, should we just go back? I mean, how many more hills? Uh, it says it's right there, but it, it's, it's obviously not. Um, and we kept scraping the bottom of our car. We're like, that was probably our oil pan. We're gonna be stuck out here, you know, and have to buy this car outright and ship it back to the United States. Um, and so finally we round the corner and, and we see this picture. And uh, the problem with uh, Iceland photos is they don't look as near as amazing as they actually do in person. Um, so the things up above are like power lines so you can kind of see how big it is. But the crazy thing was how much wind was just being picked up from the volume of water coming out of this thing. And so you're sitting at the edge, the wind is like pushing you back and you're at this massive cliff. You're like, hopefully it doesn't push me the other way. Otherwise I'm going down uh, at the bottom of that. Um, and, and the kind of the cool thing is as, as I was sitting in front of this waterfall, I truly couldn't think about anything else. Like there's a lot of things in my life or a lot of things that I could be thinking about or processing or whatever. And I just could like everything faded away. And all I could do was just sit and like look at this waterfall. And it was just so magnificent, so beautiful. And I think that this is a tiny picture of what Paul must have felt coming face to face with Jesus. When we see something so magnificent, so beautiful, everything else seems to fade away, especially the things that don't matter. Paul goes even further to say, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Not only do the works he has done, his whole life seemed like a loss to him. They don't matter anymore. But everything, everything he has ever done or thought about, nothing compares to just knowing Jesus. And that's how great having a personal relationship with Jesus is. For Paul, nothing even comes close to the value of knowing and being in relationship with him. On top of this, Paul says that for Jesus' sake, he has suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish. The translation can literally be feces of an animal, dog poop, okay, is what rubbish means, or trash, right? I've considered all things to be trash in order that I may gain Christ. Trash or rubbish, dog poop, isn't something you spend a lot of time dwelling on, I guess, unless you step in it. It's just there waiting to be taken to the dump. It's waiting to get thrown away, right? 
It's got no value and no one attaches their worth to the things in their trash can. One thing I do, I feel like I do need to mention here is that it can be hard to throw things away sometimes. Um, That's why Paul says, I think that's why he says he has suffered the loss of all things. It's not just like, yeah, whatever, it's gone. He has suffered the loss. Sometimes it can be hard, right, um, for us to give things up. Do I have any hoarders in the room? Anybody who like hangs on to everything? Okay, no one just wants to admit it because Sarah is a hoarder and she didn't even raise her hand, okay? (laughs) You as people who hang on to things, I know you're out there, okay? There's no shame in it really, okay? But I might make fun of you a little bit. Uh, It's tough to throw things away sometimes, right? My wife until like two years ago kept every assignment, school assignment, since she was like in second grade. I'm not kidding, there are boxes in her garage. I'm like, what could these be? These are probably important documents. And it's like a second grade like assignment that I think she got an A on and she wanted to like remember. I was like, Sarah, I love you, but I don't think you need these anymore. And it was hard for her to let go of those, uh, hard for her to let go of things. But eventually, you know, we do come to the conclusion that you don't need everything. You don't need these, right? They're, they're not as important as we might think. And on a deeper level, there are things that do not come close to the value of knowing Jesus, even though they're good things and they're hard to throw away. Uh, a, a more deep example uh, is as I started following and closer in Jesus, if you don't know anything about my story, like uh, I guess the quick version is I didn't grow up in church. So like my, my entire family aren't Christians. And so as I got closer and closer to knowing, to Je- to knowing Jesus, I, I found myself holding on to my family with one hand the love I have for them, their, their future, their salvation. Like I wanted to make sure that they knew Jesus the way I did. And I was holding on to Jesus with the other. And I was holding on to both. And it was literally stretching me in both directions to the point where Jesus is like, hey, if you really want to know me and be in deep relationship with me, you got to give your family up. You got to give them up and trust me with whatever's going. And I wouldn't say my family is rubbish or trash, but in comparison to knowing Jesus, I had to suffer the loss of their future, their salvation, you know, my, even my relationship with him for just like knowing Jesus. And so I, I do want to mention that it can be hard sometimes to give things up as we get to know Jesus more. So what does this mean? Uh, as we know about Paul's life, he has literally given up his comfort, his career, his social standing, and even his very life. I mean, he's stuck in prison. He gives up his very life. Why? What's his reasoning? He says, in order that I may gain Christ. Jesus says in Mark 8.35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So my question is, is there anything in your life that you might be unwilling to give up for knowing Jesus and knowing him more fully? And remember that Jesus never asked us to do anything he hasn't already done for us. Jesus came to this earth. He gave up his seat in heaven to live with us. He lived a perfect life in obedience to God and was betrayed into the hands of religious leaders who executed him. He suffered from getting spat on, ridiculed. He was even hung naked for everyone to see. And that's not even the worst part. He suffered the loss of his eternal relationship with God the Father on the cross because he took our sin upon himself. He identified with us. He lost his relationship with God in that moment. Could you imagine that having like a perfect intimate relationship with God for all eternity and having to give that up. He did all that to consume God's wrath for all of our sin that we deserve. It was poured out on him. Again, Jesus never asks us to do anything he hasn't already done for us. 
Jesus suffered the loss of the most important thing for you and for me. And he did it so that we can have access to God, true access to God, and live in relationship with him. See, our, our sin separates us from him, right? Our brokenness, we're guilty in his presence. But Jesus makes the great substitutionary sacrifice so that we may be counted righteous before God. That means right standing. He sees us. He sees Jesus' perfect record, not our broken one. And not a righteousness that comes from works, but solely comes through faith in him, trusting that Jesus' death is enough. It's enough. He did it. And that's truly amazing. This is the Jesus that we get to know, truly know, on a deep personal level. It's amazing to me, not only that he did this act, but wants to know us. It's one thing to just be like, yeah, I did it for you. Peace out. Like, enjoy. You know, he's like, I, I want to know you. I want to live in relationship with you. So why is knowing Jesus better than anything? Because he rescued us from our failures, our brokenness, and by his death and resurrection allows us to be in right standing when, with God when we come to him in faith. And this is the best news that we could ever hear. And honestly, nothing comes close to the value of knowing him. Honestly, for the past three years, I've really struggled to be content. Um, if you walk through life with me, you know that. <laughs> uh, I've struggled to be content, satisfied, um, and, and to be content in my job for the most part. By the heart of it, I'm really just selfish, I realize. Like, I want to be helpful, needed, as seen as a necessity. I want people to say, like, oh, man, I don't know what I would do without Jake, you know, in my life. That's, like, what I want people to say to me, and I'm, like, I'm, I'm craving that, Right? And this tore me up in, uh, for years and caused depression, anxiety, deep frustration within my soul. But the gospel, and recently Jesus has r reminded me that getting all the praise and recognition my heart desires will never fully make me content. I always will need more. That hole in my heart is all-consuming and will always need to be fed, but it's meant to be fed by him and not the praise or admiration of other people. But Jesus came so that I may live life and live it abundantly. He did the same for us. And that abundant life can only be found in knowing him, communing with him, looking for, to him to be our ultimate satisfaction, not in anything else. And when I truly sit and rest on these truths, everything else does seem to fade away. I will give, gladly give up my need to be needed, as I call it, when I stop and behold and find my contentment in Christ. I stop looking for my job, my relationships, to fulfill me. It forces me to say, wow, Jesus, you love me enough to not only die for me, but then to continue gently ministering to my soul, reminding me of truths that I need to hear. You love me enough to pursue me until I find what I truly need in you. Like, you don't give up on me. And so my question for you is, how, how about you? What about your relationship with Jesus right now causes you to lose sight of all things? What about your relationship with Jesus causes you to lose sight of all things? What and part of your relationship with Jesus makes you just sit and go, wow. And if it's really hard for you to answer that question, I would encourage you to go to him and talk to him about that. Wrestle with that. Because I think if we don't have this type of relationship with Jesus that does have all things fade away, again, this isn't perfect. Like, we, we all go through seasons where we struggle with this. I'm not saying, like, hey, if it's not this, something's real wrong here. Like, we, we do go through seasons. It's a journey, right? But if we can stop and think, like, what has Jesus done for me? That makes me sit and go, wow, like everything else, all these things I thought were important seem to fade away. And so friends, my, my deepest desire as one of your pastors is that you would fall more and more in love with Jesus every day. 
and that your value, your confidence would be in his work on your behalf and not your own. My prayers that our goal is like a whole church family would be exactly as Paul states, to simply know Jesus, to know Jesus. Like that would be our goal. Make him the hero, know him, truly know him. What he has done for us and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul ends the letter with, the power, the power of his transformative work in our life that we Our old selves are dead, and he has raised them up. The power that his resurrection brings. He has overcome sin and death cosmically, but also in our life. Let us learn to rest in knowing the one who overcame it all. With that, I'd love for you to, yeah, pray with me. Father, we first and foremost thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us the blueprint of what it looks like to live in relationship with you, to seek you, to to know you more fully, that we're not left trying to fill in the answers by ourselves, but, but we have a place to go to trust you and look to. So I appreciate your word. Thank you for Paul and his, uh, his sacrifices, willing to give up everything so that we could know you. We wouldn't know and be in relationship with you if it wasn't for men like Paul who are willing to take it um, and share it with us. So Lord, we, we are grateful for that. Lord, would you stir in our hearts a strong, strong desire to pursue you fully, not to look to our resume or what we have done, but look to what you have perfectly done on our behalf. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.